Hello, I'm Lisa German, Dean of the University Libraries, and I am delighted to welcome you to this international virtual book launch for the Selected Letters of John Berryman. Poet John Berryman was a professor here at the University of Minnesota for the last 15 years of his life, and his papers are held in our Upper Midwest Literary Archives. Today, we will explore how these letters illuminate John Berryman's life and work. We will hear from the book editors, Philip Coleman from Trinity College Dublin and Callista McRae from the New Jersey Institute of Technology, as well as an array of readers and presenters. Thank you all for contributing to this event. This program is a part of our Friends of the Libraries Friends Forum, a series for curious minds. So thank you very much, Friends of the Libraries. We ask that you, our guests, remain muted throughout the program. You'll notice two buttons at the bottom of your screen. Please use the chat button if you have technical questions and the Q&A button if you have questions for Philip and Callista. You may submit your questions at any time and we'll get to as many as possible later in the presentation. Before we begin, I'd like to share a perspective that is important to all of us. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to not acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relationships with tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. Thank you. Now let's turn to Dr. Cecily Marcus, who is the curator of the Upper Midwest Literary Archives. Thank you, Dean German. Good afternoon or good evening, uh, depending on where you are. I'm Cecily Marcus, curator of the Upper Midwest Literary Archives here at the University of Minnesota Libraries. It's my privilege to steward the John Berryman papers and related collections whose contents were heavily drawn on for the selected letters of John Berryman, edited by Philip Coleman and Callista McRae. I wanna thank the Department of English for their partnership in co-sponsoring this event and uh, chiefly the Friends of the University Libraries. I also wanna thank the family of John Berryman for making this collection, this book, and many other books and research projects possible Kate Donahue, who's overseen the access to the collection for its many years at the university, and, and Martha Mayhew. And we want to thank John Berryman's daughter, Sarah, his grandson, John, and other family members. This afternoon, we have the pleasure of hearing from scholars and writers from as far as Dublin, uh, coming from Boston, New York, the Twin Cities, will be treated not only to a conversation with the editors led by Professor Peter Campion, but also to uh, uh, a number of letters found in the book, selected and read by Patricia Hample, Richard Kelly, Eve Cobain, Henri Cole, 
Joyce Sutfin, Michael Dennis Brown, and Richard Ryan. There will also be time for questions uh, from you, the audience. With, uh, you can enter your questions in the Q&A at any time. To get things started, I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Peter Campion. Peter Campion is the author of Radical as Reality, Form and Freedom in American Poetry, four collections of poems, Other People, The Lions, El Dorado, and One Summer Evening at the Falls, as well as several monographs and catalog essays on modern and contemporary visual art. A recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship and the Joseph Brodsky Rome Prize, he teaches in the writing program at the University of Minnesota. Over to you, Peter. Thanks so much, Cecily, and thank you, Dean German, and to everybody who's attending this event. Berryman's 77th dream song begins, C.D. Henry rose up shy in the world and shaved and swung his barbells, duded Henry up and PA'd poor thousands of persons on topics of grand moment to Henry. Ah, to those less and none. Well, I think that the attendance numbers, which I'm seeing pop up on the screen are proving Berryman wrong here. These are topics of grand moment to many people, uh, not only in the United States, around the world. This uh, poet's reach is non pare. And I'm going to try to minimize my verbiage this afternoon because our panelists are also non pare. I'll uh, right now uh, read uh, or quick uh, bios of each of them. And uh, as the event goes on, I'll be in an even quicker way introducing them and cueing them for their participation. Cecily Marcus, from whom we've just heard, is the curator of the Givens Collection of African-American Literature, the Performing Arts Archives, and the Upper Midwest Literary Archives, as well as the founding PI of Umber Search African-American History. Lisa A. German is university librarian and dean of libraries at UMN. Her research focuses on library collections, management, planning, policy development, implementation and assessment. Philip Coleman, one of the editors of this book of letters is associate professor in the School of English and fellow of Trinity College, Dublin. He is author of John Berryman's Public Vision. Callista McRae, the other co-editor, is an insistent professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and author of Lyric as Comedy, the Poetics of Abjection in Postwar America. Patricia Hample is a literary nonfiction writer and author most recently of The Art of the Wasted Day. She is a University of Minnesota Regents Professor Emerita and recipient of the MacArthur Award. She was also one of John Berryman's students as an undergrad at UMN. Richard Kelly, also a student of Berryman, is an archivist, professor, and author of John Berryman, A Checklist, 
and editor of We Dream of Honor, John Berryman's letter, Letters to His Mother. Eve Cobain completed her PhD on Berryman at Trinity College, Dublin, where she also co-edited Robert Lowell and Irish Poetry. She is a research officer at the Irish National Adult Learning Organization. Henri Cole is a poet whose most recent books include Touch, Nothing to Declare, Blizzard, and Orphic Paris. In 2017, he was elected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Harold Bloom once wrote of Henri that he is a master poet, a central poet of his generation. It's hard to improve on that endorsement. Joyce Sutphin is Minnesota's current poet laureate and a professor of English at Gustavus Adolphus College. Her wonderful selected poems, Carrying Water to the Field, appeared in 2019. Michael Dennis Brown is a prize-winning poet, librettist, and emeritus professor at UMN. His most recent collection is Chimes. Some of his songs and lyrics have recently been collected in Build Me a Boat, Words for Music, 1968 to 2018. And Richard Ryan, who corresponded with Berryman after their first meeting in 1970, is a poet and former diplomat. Winter in Minneapolis, which appeared in his second book, Ravenswood, influenced Berryman's own poem, Minneapolis Mother. Philip is joining us from Trinity College, Dublin, and Callista from New York. And I'd like to uh, then uh, to bring them in here now briefly to tell us um, to something general about the book, its origins, its content, what it was like to work in the archives and, and, and to put this beautiful book together. Sure, Peter, thank you so much um, uh, for that wonderful um, introduction. And of course, I should also just say at the beginning that uh, none of this would have been possible at all without the support of uh, Kate Donoghue Berryman, uh, Martha Berryman Mayu and the Berryman family over many years. Um, their support for this project and other works of scholarship on Berryman is just, you know, has been remarkable and constant. Um, so the book has its basis in part um, on, you know, at least from my perspective, on, on my own earlier research on Berryman. Um, I first visited the University of Minnesota libraries in 1998, where I had the good fortune to work with uh, Richard Kelly uh, under his mentorship there. And we'll hear from Richard, of course, later in the program. And so Richard um, edited the first selection of Berryman's letters, We, we Dream of Honor, uh, Berryman's Letters to His Mother. That book came out in uh, 1998, uh, sorry, 1988. Um, and um, in his introduction to that book, uh, Richard uh, explains that um, even though it's over 400 pages long, um, it only includes ar around 220 of the 700 letters John Berryman wrote to his mother. And so when I first went to the archive, I was struck by the, you know, the sheer scale of, of the archive and of the collection. And it was clear to me um, even then that, you know, there was a lot more archival work to be done, that there were certainly a selected letters in, in there to, to be prepared, if not a collected letters. Other letters appeared in, in John Haffenden's 
indispensable biography of Berryman, which appeared in 1982. But this book um, is, 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 you know, it's, it's the most comprehensive uh, selection of Berryman's correspondence uh, to be published to date. Um, it includes letters from uh, nearly 200 correspondents, um, including the earliest letter Callista and I could find um, written by John Berryman to his parents just before his 12th birthday, um, right up to a letter written uh, to Edward Hoagland at Christmas 1971, uh, possibly a few weeks, if not a few days be before his death. Um, so between those letters we have in, in, in the book, which I'm sure you've all seen <laughs> right at this point, we have letters um, from across the range of Berryman's career, um, drawing on research undertaken with the help of colleagues at the University of Minnesota um, and many other archives and libraries um, across the United States, in the United Kingdom, and indeed here in Ireland, um, in University College Dublin and in my own uh, college here at Trinity College too. Um, Callista and I started working uh, together on the project in 2014. Uh, we, we first met at the Berryman Centennial Conference at the University of Minnesota in that year. And um, since then, you know, we've been very fortunate that Harvard UP uh, took the book on board and have produced this really beautiful volume. So a big shout out to everybody at Harvard UP tonight also uh, for, for the great work they've done. But I might just pass over Peter to Callista at this point and she can say a bit more maybe about this and about the process and the work involved uh, you know, in gathering uh, the contents uh, in the book. So, Philip, just echo a little bit of what you said. I'd add that the project wouldn't have been possible without the help of so many librarians and stacks assistants at UMN. They started retrieving carts full of boxes for this project in 20, I think 15. And I would walk in in the morning and the reading room would have 15 different researchers champing at the bit to request materials and the librarians just juggled everyone um, with infinite patience. And when we were in different time zones, they would send scans to us as many libraries did. So this project has really made me appreciate the work of archives. In addition to UMN, there are so many other libraries that contributed letters uh, like the New York Public Library where the FSG papers are held uh, and the New York Review of Books records Yale has many of Delmore Schwartz's letters. Texas Tech has Edward Hogan's letters. So every time I open the book, I am reminded of a librarian who um, dug something out of a box in the stacks. Uh, many of them probably undergraduates who got really sick of seeing one particular call number again and again. Um, Peter, I know later on we'll probably have time to talk a bit more about the selecting of materials and the really tooth pulling process of cutting letters. Um, so maybe that's uh, enough for me from now. Well, sure. Well, we will therefore be able to hear, hear some of some excerpts from the letters because our first reader, uh, Patricia Hample is up next and uh, who's joining us from St. Paul. Hello, everyone. Um, I was a student in at least two classes of Berryman's when I was an undergraduate in 
probably 1966 um, at the University of Minnesota. Um, there were no creative writing courses at the university at that time, not to mention no MFA. It was known that if you wrote poetry and you kind of asked uh, John Berryman if he'd look at your poems, he would. And he would invite you to his house and uh, talk about the poems. And uh, that did happen. But um, he was not a professor of English. Um, he was a member of something called the Humanities Program. Um, and he taught undergraduate survey courses. That's what I took from him. Um, we read Dante and we read Homer, you know, sort of the classics that um, were part of what was then called Western civilization. Um, Berryman began the semester in a way no other professor ever did. It was, um, it's hard to capture how radical it was what he did. He um, assigned each of us to write our autobiography on one page and to hand it in. And then the following class, he actually read them or passages of those that he thought were really good with admiration. He read them in sort of an oracular way. You sounded like you knew, really knew how to write when he was reading this stuff aloud. Um, but it was unheard of to write about yourself. <laughs> I mean, who cared? Well, he, he cared. I can remember another professor when I wrote in a paper I think the letter I was circled in red and on the margin it said no. The idea that you would speak in your own voice was not acceptable for a student, but not for Berryman. Um, it was as if he was asking us to write a letter to him so he would know us better. He read them all and, and, and we were sort of amazed. It was the idea of writing your own life, a life not yet begun, was for many of us the first um, kind of affirmation of our minds or of the possibility of a life of the mind. Later on, I read his amazing essay on Anne Frank, whose diary he had read in proof. Um, he went to the commentary offices and uh, pulled the proofs and was looking at them. These were the very first um, efforts to show in English, in America anyway, um, Anne Frank's diary. And uh, before she was known or acknowledged by anyone as the voice of the Holocaust, his confirmation of her genius and his understanding of the spiritual and I'd say even political aspects of autobiography were just astonishing to me. And I want to read, before I read the letter I chose, I want to read a little passage from that essay. I would call the subject of Anne Frank's diary even more mysterious and fundamental than St. Augustine's and describe it as the conversion of a child into a person. Why, I asked myself with astonishment when I first encountered the diary or the extracts commentary published, has this process not been described before, universal as it is and universally interesting? And the answer came, it is not universal, for most people do not grow up in any degree that will correspond to Anne Frank's growing up. Hmm. 
There are surely more intimate and revealing letters that others will choose to highlight uh, this afternoon. Uh, but <clears throat> I've chosen a business letter uh, that Berryman wrote in the spring of 1962 to Edward Bloom, who uh, at Brown University, who had apparently invited him to come uh, as a visiting professor to Brown the following academic year. I've chosen it because it shows the particular wheeling and dealing um, of a mid-century academic writer, at least someone as celebrated as Berryman already was. And because he, in this letter, he takes very seriously the job that he's going to be taking on. And he includes Anne Frank in the syllabus right there alongside some of the major European voices of modern literature. So this is the letter. 11 April, 62. Dear Mr. Brown, thank you very much for your letter and for the offer it contains. I feel strongly inclined to accept the offer and gladly, but it is just 24 hours since your letter came and in a place as large as this, meaning the university, the wheels are numerous and the wheels grind slow. And I'm not quite yet in a position to accept, although I've had long talks this morning with both the Dean of the Graduate School and the Dean of SLA, which was uh, Science, Literature and the Arts. It's now CLA, the College of Liberal Arts, and have just written to President Wilson. Both the deans agree in principle, and I am sure the president will, and my immediate chairman, Ralph Ross of Humanities, did also before he left for Texas to harangue the ignorant. But there are other matters and other people involved, I think, though as soon as I hear back from the president and Ross returns from Texas, I expect both on Friday, day after tomorrow, I will be able to send you at once an effective acceptance. The formal acceptance will inevitably be de delayed a few days. Provisionally, a word about my courses the advanced composition and fiction courses, okay. And I would not dream of suggesting any interference for your poetic composition setup. Would you say to Mr. Damon that I remember vividly his pioneer essay on Ulysses and work on Blake? Now for the other, I would like very much if it did not give any other course, if I did not give any other courses the first term, though I have absolutely no objection to the occasional lecture or readings or whatever. The reason is that I am burning with anxiety to finish a large job of Shakespearean research, book length, and I'm also deep in a long poem. And owing to the university here giving me the whole fall off with pay, I am oriented to a maximum of autumnal freedom. But in the spring, I'll be glad to give a third course as you propose, graduate with hotshot undergraduates, seminar style, one evening a week, two hours or more, three credits, term paper, midterm, here are the five possibilities. One, deep form in lyric poetry to epic. American emphasis, but European and Oriental poetry and theory will be drawn on. Two, Henry James, and Stephen Crane, Polar Types in American a Narrative. Three, The Age of Hamlet, 1600, 
materials, literary, religious, philosophical, institutional, political, biological, psychological, emphasis, original texts. Four, studies in modern European lit, 1984, Yeats, Ulysses, The Trial, Anne Frank, etc. Five, Shakespeare's utopian plays, also Thomas More, Montaigne, James I. I like three and five best myself. I haven't seen your catalog, so don't know about overlap. Yours sincerely. A lot of um, um, contractions and some wonderful misspellings. I love, it's all very easy to follow. I love the immediacy of the way the book has been edited and published so that we see him very much on the fly. It, it's a terrific uh, part of the book. Thank you so much, Trish. We, should, we can move now to Dick Kelly, who's also here in the Twin Cities. Thank you, Peter. I too, as you mentioned, earlier was a student of John Berryman's for several years. And uh, after I became a librarian at the University of Minnesota Libraries, I stayed in contact with him and uh, began uh, putting together a checklist of works by and about him. And then subsequently uh, did uh, a collection of his letters to his mother, We Dream of Honor. And I also did a, 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 a bibliography of his personal library, which was a fantastic library, and uh, co-edited a collection of essays on him. But uh, the library that I mentioned is also in the University Manuscripts Division, along with the uh, papers themselves. So it's another great resource that we have. And working with Kate Berryman and getting to know her well, I was able to help with acquiring both those collections. Uh, the letter I'm going to read is the first letter Berryman wrote after coming to Minneapolis in 1954. He had recently been teaching creative writing at the University of Iowa and had been dismissed for a drunken incident off campus. Uh, following his firing, his friend, poet Alan Tate, had found him a, a position in the humanities program at the University of Minnesota. Uh, this letter that I'm going to be reading is written to Shirley Eliasson, one of the many gifted students at Iowa he had, including Philip Levine, W.D. Snodgrass, and Donald Justice, all of whom were influenced by Berryman as a teacher. Uh, the letter is addressed 2509 Humboldt Avenue South, Minneapolis, and dated October 6th, 1954. And it reads, Dear Shirley, I have a comfortable apartment and good for working. I am less tired than I thought. This city is delightful. He liked Minneapolis. I talked with the humanities people here on Monday 
And probably I'll be giving Dante in a modern seminar this winter. I just moved in today. I'm three blocks from the Tates and will be here for at least six weeks. I am drinking very little. The Iowa City business is receding fast, but as you can see, I still can't write a letter. One of the loveliest small lakes in America, this is Lake of the Isles, uh, is 50 yards off and I walk around it every day, three miles. I feel statistical. I went to an opening night at the Art Institute of borrowed 18th century French stuff to show off the Chardin attributes of the arts they just bought. It's big, 44 by 54 and spectacular, not altogether characteristic except for the stunning painting of the books on the left and the coins. The still life they already had is better. But I spent an hour looking at Watteau's Dance in the Pavilion from Cleveland, and there were some magnificent things regularly here. There are some magnificent things regularly here, especially Rembrandt's Lucretia, a Renoir of San Marco in Venice, a painting like a bomb, and one of the best Gauguin's I ever saw, a Tahitian landscape with green in the middle you'd like to eat. I hope I am going to be able to work here. Love, John. Thank you, Dick. Yeah. What a beautiful letter. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to turn now to Eve Cobain, who's joining us from Dublin. Thanks, Peter, and thanks to the other speakers. So my PhD work focused on music and the poetry of John Berryman, drawing majorly from the Berryman papers. So like many in attendance today, I've also benefited greatly from the generosity of librarians and archivists at the U of M. So I felt it would be remiss of me not to focus on a few of the letters this afternoon or this evening as it is in Dublin, um, which show him to be a real Renaissance man. When he returned from Cambridge um, to the US in 1942, Berryman began taking strides to increase his musical intelligence and his love of music, which is so evident in his letters of this period, would come to shape his poetic career. And I'm delighted to be able to pour over so many of them which are now collected in this impressive volume. Berryman's letters to his then fiancée Eileen Mulligan, who he affectionately terms Broom, are testament to his new musical enthusiasm and shed light on his developing tastes. These passionate love letters include exhaustive detail on records purchased and even concert notes. At this point, Berryman was already beginning to think of himself as something of a connoisseur, though he still had a voracious appetite to learn, particularly through the mentorship of the eminent musicologist B.H. Hagen, with whom he was also regular, regularly corresponding. In one very animated letter to Mulligan, dated January 1942, which I'll read from now, Berryman describes how he is seeking to cultivate an appreciation of opera, a form he had never much enjoyed before. Quote, in a few minutes, I'm going off to hear a Philadelphia company do Figaro in English at the Opera House. Tonight, opera and I come face to face. I am giving it every chance. But if it doesn't please me, 
woe. I spent the afternoon reading the ridiculous libretto and listening to the Glyndebourne recording in Payne Hall at Harvard. That music should be spent on such trash, it seems to me at this moment, is just short of criminal. To make matters worse, the translation I saw is of a blackness and vice unspeakable. The translator invents an omit as if he had no original. Wherever a lyric occurs in Italian, that son of a bitch writes a lyric of his own. And quite the worst lyric I've ever seen. <laughs> I could have translated the whole thing better myself. Not that that piece of trash is worth my time, worth Mozart's how much less. But Figaro's Non Pio and Dry is one of the finest compositions I have heard. Really magnificent. So the letter is lengthy, and after a further list of criticisms, subsequent to viewing the production, Berryman congratulates himself for staying until the end, arriving at the discovery that, quote, it is possible that opera and I will get along after all. Quote, near the end of Act One, Berryman concludes, things must have gone very well on the stage and in the pit, and suddenly I found I could not breathe. The excitement of great music, it was as simple and amazing as that, unquote. The latter statement on the breathtaking and hair-raising physicality of the listening experience says something, I think, very particular about his own art. Between 1941 and 1942, Berryman wrote love letters um, to Eileen consistently with concert reviews, record requests, and of his great, um, of his progress with the gramophone the icon that he went to great lengths to purchase from B.H. Hagen. As soon as, as he was sure that he, he had secured some teaching at Harvard that term, he wrote immediately um, on an indeterminate Tuesday night in spring of 1942, I am buying capital letters, that gramophone, I swoon with delight. Berryman's flirtation with music during this period of his life, as the letters testify, was, as I'm sure you've now gathered, unrelenting. In a later letter dated 22nd of March, commenting on his time spent in the company of Delmore Schwartz, the poet explains the deepening significance of music in his emotional life. These conversations and Henry James and music, late Beethoven, late Beethoven are my diversions, my way of getting from one day to the next. The importance of Beethoven, who was to become one of Berryman's lifelong heroes, also comes into view in The Dispossessed, which celebrates the beauty of soaring Beethoven and in the late portraiture of the composer, Beethoven Triumphant, in which Berryman in fact shares much in common um, with that hero himself. When Berryman and Eileen married, he agreed to impose some new restrictions on his purchasing of books and records, but his epithemalian Canto Amor is testament to the burgeoning musical interest that provided the backdrop to their relationship and the ways in which his sense of romantic love and music intertwined. Over to you, Peter. Oh, thank you so much, Eve. It's a pleasure to turn now to Henri Cole, who is joining us from Boston. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Berryman's first child, Paul, was born in 1957. Let's see, that's a, a year younger than me. So that might help you just in terms of chronology. Um, uh, a, a year 
a year and a half after Paul was born, um, his wife left him with Paul and uh, it was four, four, four or five years later that he remarried. So um, there are wonderful letters of tenderness and unease addressed to Paul. Um, they combine, I think of tenderness and unease as two of the qualities of the dream songs that are so uh, gorgeous. Um, in the letters to Paul, he addresses him sometimes as Paul, sometimes as Pookie, sometimes as Mr. Pooh, sometimes as Sir Paul. So um, I'm going to read from one of those letters. Uh, well, I should say I had the pleasure a half dozen years ago of, of meeting uh, Paul, who looks a lot like his handsome father, I must say, um, his handsome gifted father. So this letter is dated in 1961, October 1961, Paul would be four years old. Um, Dear Pookie, I haven't seen you in so long. I don't know how you talk or what you can understand. Again and again, I hoped to be able to come to see you, but this is a large country and I live far away and I haven't had, you won't understand this, nor will your mother be able to explain it to you. You are too young, darling. I just haven't had the money. One reason, the big one, why I haven't had the money to come see you is that, but you won't understand this either. I send money to your mother for your living. I miss you. I miss you every day, and I have done so every day since I saw you last. I have long dreams, one last night about you. Draw me a new picture, like of cliffs and sand dunes below where we are. Your mother will explain this. Now, you must remember what I say. And then there are four bullet points. One, it is not possible for me to see you much if ever again, but you are to know that I love you. I will come as soon as I can. There is more to say about this. Two, you must be a good boy, obeying your very good mother, heading to some end outside yourself. Far later, your mother will be able to explain this. And with respect for your father, who has not been the most useless man 
in the present American world. Three, then kick it all aside, except for your veneration of your mother and do what seems necessary and consonant with your gifts, training, and allegiance. Four, strong fathers crush sons. Mm. You are spared this. I am not able to form any conception of how my work will be regarded. Go on. Yours and with love, John Berryman. Back to you, Peter. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful reading, Ori. We're going to take a moment to um, have a little chat with the editors now, uh, Philip and Callista. I wanted to ask just a few questions, and there'll be a chance for the audience to ask questions uh, soon, too. But I was wondering, first of all, what new things you that you two think the letters tell us about Berryman's work? Sure, Peter, I, I can begin to answer that question because I know it's something that, you know, Callista and I'm sure many people here tonight would be able to uh, contribute to the discussion on this. Um, I mean, we've just heard these remarkable letters read and read so well, so powerfully, so beautifully by Trish, Dick, um, Eve and Henri. And I think even these four letters show us that there are new things to be found um, out about Berryman uh, in these letters, even though some of them are very short. I mean, I was so struck by what, you know, Trish read there um, in terms of, you know, what the letter tells us about Berryman's um, approach to being an academic, being a scholar, you know, being a university professor, a teacher in the 50s, 60s um, in the United States, the kinds of things he thought his students should be reading, um, and his approach to the, you know, the, the, the profession of scholarship. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting and as interesting today as it was, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, Dick's letter there, that wonderful description of Berryman finding himself in the Twin Cities for the first time, going to the Art Institute and really passionately engaging with what was available there. I think that's, um, that's a new um, area really for Berryman scholars now to explore. It has been identified before, it has been noted before his passionate interest in the visual arts. But I think the letters, even that one letter read by Dick shows just how much more there is to explore on that theme. Um, also, Eve's letter there, you know, on the, on the issue of um, Berryman and music, you know, her research on this has been really groundbreaking. And I hope that, you know, in, in, in the next year or two that she will be able to publish that work because there is, again, so much more to be said about Berryman and music. So these letters alone, Peter, I think, begin to show us that, there, that you know, that, that the, the book really does show us new things about Berryman across the range of his interests. I might just um, quote something also that Anthony, Anthony Lane uh, mentioned in his uh, New Yorker review of the book. It was the first review of the book and it was really nice to see it in that magazine. And um, he commented that there's hardly a paragraph in which Berryman may not be heard straining toward the condition of music. Hmm. Uh, that even when he's writing letters, he's, as Callista um, has put it, 
um, you know, that he's he's thinking about the poems that he's writing. And I think in Henri's really moving uh, reading of that letter, you have a sense of that. You have a sense of a poem there somewhere under the surface waiting to break through. And of course, there are poems to Paul also, um, um, uh, you know, some of which, one of which is in, in the letters as well. Um, so this, you know, there, there is so much, I think, uh, to, be, to be learned about the poet, his craft, his working habits, his interests. And uh, they, uh, you know, they really do take, take the scholarship in, in exciting new directions, I think. Uh, Callista, might. The appreciation of music and art hearing the letters just read, uh, that really struck me while we were working on the book. Uh, in part, I'm in a humanities department, so it was nice to see someone doing that in 1940 and in 1950. And I really appreciated how widely Berryman is thinking about the arts beyond poetry. I think beyond that, to the question of what the letters tell us about Berryman's work, what for me was most surprising about the letters uh, was often how little they have in common with the dream songs in terms of language uh, or style or tone. There are a lot of funny moments and a lot of moving moments, um, but many of them, as Trish Hample's letter suggests, are also pretty practical, ordinary sounding letters. Um, and I expected there to be perhaps more stylistic similarity than there was. So the, working on the letters has really made me think more about how Berryman makes the dream songs so completely unexpected. Um, that gulf between the letters and what he works up in the dream songs. That's really interesting. I, I speaking of gulfs or symbioses, you know, I think Berryman is a poet about whom a lot of people have notions of how his his life and art work together, but those those sometimes might be mistaken. And I I wonder. Uh, I mean, I think this is true in general of those poets who are labeled somewhat ina inaccurately. I think as confessional poets, and I wonder what about his life or his life and contacts uh, this this book illuminates. Yeah, I think that's a really um, interesting point, uh, Peter. And I think there is this kind of uh, critical phenomenon of, you know, kind of narrow confessionalism, um, where, you know, the, the poetry is sometimes reduced to a kind of, you know, straightforward, uh, you know, self-representation, um, um, one that's really only concerned with the kind of private details of the life. But we get that, of course, in these letters. I mean, Berryman, as, as Henri's reading from the letter to Paul shows, I mean, in, in many of these letters, he talks about the intimate details of his private experience. Um, but more often in this book, uh, the letters are concerned with his various public personae. Uh, so Berryman as teacher, engaging with students as both Dick and, and Trish have already mentioned this evening. I mean, really, a uh, passionate uh, supporter of his students' work, you know, and so that public profile is very important and that comes across very strongly um, in this uh, selection. Also his work as an editor, you know, um, from his earliest years uh, working as poetry editor at The Nation, 
um, through to later engagements with people on this side of the Atlantic in the UK and Ireland with Al Alvarez at the TLS, for example, with John Silken and others. Um, his work as an editor was, you know, constant and throughout his life, he was very interested in um, the direction that magazines were going in, uh, literary magazines and periodicals. Um, I've already mentioned his work, you know, as a, as a scholar, as a professor, as an academic, you know, who was interested in the discipline of the humanities um, and the relationship between humanities programs broadly conceived and English departments as they, you know, came into existence. Um, um, in the decades since his death. So, you know, I think all of these aspects of his profile um, are very much in evidence in the letters and they speak to a much uh, broader kind of public uh, figure. Um, I suppose one of the other things that, you know, in terms of his life and contacts, there's an intensity to certain um, friendships, Peter, um, and to certain correspondences that is co constant. I mean, it's it's really remarkable to read, for example, the letters early on to people like Milt Halliday, his friend, mm -hmm. the historian, long letters from Cambridge uh, when he was in England, uh, letters to his friend Bain Campbell, the poet who died in 1940, to Delmore Schwartz. Um, the intensity of those letters and the constancy of his friendship, I think, is really remarkable. And then later on, um, letters through the 50s and 60s to Saul Bellow, to Robert Giroux, to William Meredith, and younger writers. Um, this has already been mentioned uh, by Trish in particular, um, Adrian Rich. I mean, that that is something that I think um, came as a really interesting discovery for Callista and I on this project that, you know, Berryman developed, I think, a really supportive, um, mutually supportive um, epistolary co correspondence with Rich. Um, and uh, I think that, that that's been a re revelation, you know. Well, just to follow up on that that same revelation, um, I wonder how this book also um, changes the, the conversation about Berryman within a literary cultural context. This is something you've written about, Philip, and 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 so have, have you, Callista. Um, Callista, first, please. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, just listening to that letter uh, regarding the temporary position um, with Edward Bloom, one thing that struck me while working on the letters was how far back uh, the situation of academic precarity goes. Um, mm. There's one early letter. I think Berryman is not sure if he's going to have his Harvard contract renewed, and he notes that Veritas is an anagram for I starve, uh, which is very fresh. Uh, and he, he bounces between Michigan and Harvard and Princeton without a very certain or long-term contract for years. He writes a ton of letters applying for positions uh, or ap often applying for money so that he could get out of teaching as many sections as he taught. Uh, he sometimes, it comes off as a bit of a humble brag, his talking about his teaching, about the sheer number of students who sign up for his course and how much grading he has therefore to do. But one thing that really comes out in the letters to me is the overload of work and, and how uncertain the work was. Um, Philip, you probably have more on other con contexts. 
Well, I suppose within, I mean, the, just the, the point Callista has just made, Peter, is, is so important. And again, I think it's easy to overlook that, you know, when we think of the, the kind of image of John Berryman later in his career, having won the Pulitzer, you know, the Guggenheim Award to Dublin and, and so on, you have an image of a, a successful poet. But as Callista has just said, in fact, from early on, um, the, the struggle to end, make ends meet, I mean, is there. Uh, throughout, you know, and the, and the precarity, as Callista has said, about, you know, jobs and moving from position to position, that, that doesn't end until he's in his 40s, you know. Um, so I think it's really important um, to acknowledge that. In terms of other contexts, I suppose one, one context which is related to this event uh, today is the transatlantic one. And um, I, I love the, I mean, one of the things that first drew me to Berryman was um, his uh, engagement with W.B. Yeats, you know, and in Dream Song 312, you know, he writes, you know, I, I have moved to Dublin to have it out with you, majestic shade, you whom I read so well, you know, did I read your lesson right, and so on. And so I wanted to know more about that relationship and why Berryman, this, you know, really um, amazing, idiosyncratic, original American poet was so obsessed with uh, this Irish poet um, who had died several decades before, um, you know, and he, he says in a late interview that he began work in verse making as a burning, trivial disciple of the great Irish poet William Butler Yeats. So the transatlantic connection is one that I'm really interested in. I think the book really speaks to that um, and kind of accentuates that in interesting ways. Now, unfortunately, we, we looked high and low and we searched many archives and bugged many archivists, but we could not find a letter from Berryman to Yeats for the book. Um, which is a shame. But there are other, um, you know, correspondence in the book, including Louis McNeese, uh, Brian Boydell, who Eve mentioned earlier, you know, and many others, Richard Ryan, who we'll hear from shortly. Um, you know, and I think that that context for reading Berryman, the kind of transatlantic context, Berryman as a poet between the United States and Europe in particular, I think that's something that, again, needs to be uh, given a li little bit, maybe closer attention. Um, it's been done for Robert Lowell, for example, a bit more, his contemporary, but I think uh, that's a topic that could could uh, lead to some really interesting findings in, in Berryman scholarship. Yeah, well, you know, I have one more question, but I wanted to tell you that I always remember hearing Seamus Heaney quote that uh, majestic ghost, majestic oh. shade, oh. Uh, dream song, and bringing reimporting Berryman in into uh, America in this was in Boston um well your 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 comment leads very naturally to to what I was just going to ask you to which is what do you think especially based on on what we find in these letters uh might be new avenues for research uh in in the study of of Berryman and his Berryman's work I can think. I can think of Manny, but Callista uh, first, <laughs> perhaps. So I actually, Peter, I have a hard time with this question because I can't actually imagine how another researcher would approach Berryman. <laughs> but I'll look forward to seeing. It. So for one thing, for me personally, for instance, um, is Berryman's reading of fiction, and I did have some sense that he had a massive collection of novels from Richard <laughs> Keller's checklist. Of Berryman's library. Um, but reading through the letters, there's one, for instance, where he describes 
saving Austin's persuasion to read in his old age. Uh, he has very strong opinions on Henry James. Uh, he, of course, absolutely loves Saul Bellow's books and keeps track of which pages or which passages make him laugh. So I, I'd like myself to think more about Berryman's reading of novels and short stories in addition to what he himself wrote uh, and how that might interact with the poetry. Yeah, I think that would be that would be a fantastic research topic, Peter, and also um, the ways that some contemporary novelists um, have have you know uh, thought about Berryman, from the Irish novelist Patrick McCabe, you know, to J. M. Kutzia. There are interesting references in the works of many contemporary fiction writers. Thomas Dish, uh, back in the nineteen seventies, the Minneapolis writer, wrote a novel based partly on, on, on the figure of Berryman. So there's a lot to be said about Berryman's own engagements with fiction and later fiction writers on Berryman. Also, I would say, and this is really interesting, I think, especially, I mean, um, in 2014, FSG published, uh, reissued some, some um, of Berryman's books with wonderful introductions by Henri, um, uh, Michael Hoffman, um, 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 uh, I'm blanking April on Bernard. April Bernard and others. And I think uh, the ways in which contemporary poets have engaged with Berryman is something that could really open up in, in interesting ways. Also, you know, contemporary poets like Claudia Rankine, Tiahimba Jess. And on that point, I might also say that I think this book, I think um, should um, um, open up what is for many readers of Berryman, you know, one of the most difficult areas, one of the most complex areas, and that is uh, you know, Berryman's poetry and race and racial ventriloquism, especially um, in the dream songs. So, you know, I, I hope that the uh, book, um, uh, the, the letters will actually inspire people to kind of think again and, um, you know, about, about that problem. And um, I'm really excited to see what directions the research will go in over the next couple of years. Uh, that's really exciting to think about. And I imagine among the the attendees here, there might be someone who who's going to take one the ball and run with it. Um, we have three uh, contributors who join us by pre-recorded video. Uh, they're Joyce Sutphin, Michael Dennis Brown, and Richard Ryan, and we're going to uh, play those for you now. Letter to Valerie Trueblood, January 30th, 1970. Dearest Valerie, I'm very glad to hear from you, even though your letter is painful and even more desolate than painful. Alas, I wish I could do something to procure you some happiness. The breakup with Jonas must have been hell for both of you. Please work hard and please do let me see anything you can. It's no imposition at all. I'm eager to see what you've been doing. Have great confidence in your work. I'm half ashamed to have to report that I'm happy as a bird myself and have been for two months, a long period for me. I'm nearly through drafting chapter three of my critical biography of Shakespeare. A poem called Washington in Love is advancing spasmodically. 
the sketches for it came to some 70 lines. And I'm enjoying my slight teaching of a seminar in Hamlet and one on the American character. And I'm halfway through Trollope's magnificent last chronicle of Barset. The university here gave me their highest honor last fall, a regent's professorship, adding 5,000 to my salary. So I have no money worries for almost the first time in my life. And I'm ordering and buying books like a madman. I started reading about Mexico, Valence, the Aztecs, and D.H. Lawrence's The Plumed Serpent, a revision of Terry's standard guide. We're going for three weeks or a month next summer, which is as much time as I can take off of my Shakespeare's work if I want to finish the draft of my book by Christmas. I also gave in at last to the urging of my publishers, American and British, and assembled last month the long overdue collection of my stories, only three and essays, 25 or 30, which will bring out probably next fall, this fall or next winter. My poems are appearing in Paris and Tokyo and my last royalty check from New York. I expected maybe 600 and would have been delighted to have it was for almost 8,000. I nearly fainted. My friend, the poetess, Adrian Rich, who was here from New York last week to give a reading, tells me she hates you for your role in my long poem. Take that. Love, John. Right back. P.S. Later. Midnight. I keep on thinking about you. Maybe you haven't been reading the right things. What parts of the Bible, for instance? The great poem that forms chapter 3 of Lamentations? Or the Gospel of Luke with a good commentary. Do you know the little volume called The Book of the It by Grodek? He wrote very little, devoting himself to individual therapy, but he was a very wise man, greatly respected by Freud himself, who borrowed from him the crucial term of the id for the unconscious. If I had a copy, I would send it to you, but something seems to have happened to mine. Robert Graves' White Goddess paperback now is fascinating and shrewd as well as crazy. There's a good biography of St. Paul called The First Christian by A. Powell Davis which uh, I'll be teaching to my little students next quarter. And have you read much Shakespeare with much care? Try his late play, Cymbeline. 
Listening to music is good, of course, but it can also mean giving in to temptation. As a young man teaching at Harvard, I interrupted my whole work as a poet and scholar for more than a year just to listen to Haydn, Mozart, late Beethoven, and Schubert's chamber music. Good night. Let me hear how things go. To Philip Levine from Minneapolis, 1955. Dear Father Divine, if I had knew of any college jobs, I would have tell you. It is nice to hear about the Catwoman's familiness. Let's hope it's human. On Dryden, the best criticism is Mark Van Doren's book. On Herbert, a nutty piece by Robert Graves in one of his early books, and Ross II's recent book. On Hopkins, there is stuff all over. And on Emily Dickinson, pretty good essays by Tate and Blackmore. For pimples, the only thing is martinis before breakfast, followed by martinis for breakfast. Repeated listening to the Three Penny Opera, insults to anybody you meet Tuesday afternoon, and the good life generally. Any more questions? I am glad editors are being taken in by your lousy poems. Don't worry much yet about revision of old ones. Lift out the good parts and write new ones. Any more questions? I have to pause now and read the Iliad, which I begin to lecture on tomorrow. So Franny is from these parts. So yes, shoot up here when we, you get the chance, giving me plenty of warning or at least two hours so I can make my will, do push-ups, and get the drinks ready. Love to you both, John. I'm reading proofs of the Bradstreet book. They're very pretty, old sport, waiting for Sean to make his drawings. John Berryman and Kate came for an, a year in Ireland, arriving in Dublin in September 1966. They were settled first of all, by Liam Miller of the Dolman Press in a hotel, the Majestic Hotel on Fitzwilliam Street in the centre of Dublin. And later they settled into a small, cosy, quiet home nearby. John settled quite quickly into his diurnal daily round, uh, which was focused on a small elderly pub called Ryan's Pub, known as the Beggar's Bush, in the same neighbourhood. He made poem after poem, dream song after dream song after dream song, there settled in on the couch and also receiving admirers and friends without any problem, it seemed, interrupting his poetry. This went on for the stay in Dublin, and toward the end of their stay, it's worth remembering, there was an extraordinary rowdy poetry reading 
arranged by John Montague, properly arranged, I should stress, by John Montague, um, during which the poet Patrick Kavanagh, due to a misunderstanding among the chattering and interrupting that was going on among the, the audience, a walkout by Patrick Kavanagh, followed by his crowd of his admirers and all that. John, on his days, which was on a, a raised stage, was quite oblivious of what was causing the hubbub, hubbub. And he simply continued reading. Uh, his heart, from the heart poem, I could say, uh, about Yeats. I have moved to Dublin to have it out with you, majestic ghost, you whom I read so well so many years ago. In its way, it was a splendid evening. In 1970, I came to Minnesota for a year lecturing, and as it happened, found myself living 10 minutes away across the Mississippi from 33 Arthur Avenue where the Berryman family lived. He wrote me the message, this before I had met him, in fact, he, someone told, some people told him I was there. He, and showed him some poems. He sent this message uh, in which he said, uh, commenting on a few of mine, including one that I'd just done called Winter in Minneapolis. And he said he had attempted one about Minneapolis himself. This was a poem called, as it turned out, as Minneapolis Mother. And he invited me in the, in the note to me to come over the following weekend, which I did. And there, early in our conversation, while he was commenting on my attempted Minneapolis poem, he suddenly pointedly interrupted and looked at me and said, Richard, I should say in that poem, I had a line or two which referred to girls on metal bridges and in the wet streets their long hair blowing and they will not go. That was when he interrupted and he said, you were, Richard, weren't you writing about one girl and one bridge? Tell me about that girl. Tell me about the bridge. I answered that a girl I had known very well had fallen from the Washington Avenue bridge over the Mississippi, then frozen except for the narrow, fast-flowing centre channel, and that she had not been found until the spring, when the ice over the river melted. A few days later, we arranged to meet in a cafe in Dinkytown, the university hangout area, near the river, actually. He asked me to take him up onto the bridge, 
he walked across and then returning, he paused over the steep riverbank far below. I watched as he took a handful of coins from his coat pocket and leaning over the parapet, he began dropping the coins one by one onto the snow-covered solid bank below. He was timing the fall of the coins. It was from that point, a year later on the 7th of January 1972, that he fell to his death. Well, thanks to those three readers who, who joined us by video. We have some time, uh, a little bit of time before we conclude to um, answer questions from attendees. And I see that there, uh, there's one that uh, from, from James O'Brien asking both of you, Calista and Philip, what seems to me a very good question for any researcher, which is what was it like to, to live with this person so closely? I mean, do, or, or did it feel that way as if you were? This, um. I wonder if <clears throat> I wonder if James means um, as a scholar working closely with the material. <laughs> is that do you think, Peter? That's what the question. Well, I I interpret his question to mean that when you're working so thoroughly on one artist, the way that both of you have at different times, um, that that person, even if you've never met him or her in in uh, in person in in real life. <laughs> so-called real life that um, enters your, your own life. And I, I, I think it's a very good question. What is it like for a researcher to, to spend so much time with this work and with this, this literary uh, figure? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very pertinent question. It's a difficult question. I guess in some ways it's a very personal question too, you know, um, but I, I, I remember the first time I visited uh, Minneapolis um, in 1998 uh, to spend a term there working on uh, John Berryman's papers and our good friend um, and my mentor at the time Dick Kelly picked me up at the airport and, and he we drove by 33 Arthur Avenue and he said you know there there's the the house there and um, it's it was a, a remarkable moment you know when you know I kind of thought well, this is where the poet I've been working on this is where he lived this is the street he walked down. This is, you know, the campus. Subsequently, I went to the campus and saw, saw where, where he worked and lived and tragically, you know, died in, in, in 1972. So um, then through contact with people who knew um, the poet and of course with Kate and Martha and family members, um, one gets an even, even kind of deeper kind of sense of connection. Um, but at the end of the day, Peter, and I think all of the scholars, especially tonight will appreciate this there is there is um, a really important uh, kind of kind of boundary that one needs to put up you know as a, as a scholar working on on material that you know your interest really is I mean I'm not a biographer you know I'm a literary scholar literary critic I'm interested in uh, interpretation and for this project um, you know um, it's been a, a work of kind of gathering uh, primary materials for future scholarship and um, that's my my main interest. Um, so there is there is a point I think at which 
um, a scholar, at least the kind of scholar I am, needs to kind of draw that line and say, right, you know, um, uh, this, this is where my interest ends in the individual. Um, um, you know, that, 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 that's at least my, my sense of it. Um, yeah. I would just add, so James's question used the word intimate to describe reading these letters over months and months and months. And that seemed a really good word. Also, I think with probably working with any poet's archive, um, you get to know the handwriting and see how the handwriting changes. Um, see, in Berryman's case, how his style might change in response to whomever he's writing to. Um, so it, it the, and the feeling of going through an archive and encountering, for example, um, a letter he might have scribbled on a tiny scrap of paper and left for his wife one morning before going to work um, or for, I think, uh, Saul Bellow one morning, Berryman ate, ate more of his groceries than he should or something and left a little note of heads up apologies. So seeing the ephemera of the bits of paper he found to leave these scribbled notes and just the, the wonderful fact that they've survived. There's something very intimate in that. Um, yeah. I do agree with Philip about keeping a crowbar separation between one's subjective responses to that yeah. work and what one might do as a scholar. Yeah, I might, I might just add, I mean, you know, to what Callista has said, um, which I agree with completely, Peter, um, of course, there are times when working on a poet like John Berryman, and especially when one is working with material of this nature, there are times when one needs to step back. Um, and, you know, I recall again on that first trip in 1998, uh, having spent, you know, a number of hours in the archive at Berry Street, as it was then, um, and, uh, you know, just feeling that, you know, few hours was enough, you need to kind of step back from it. Um, it, it you know, it can be overwhelming and very emotional, um, for sure. But Callista's point there about the handwriting is lovely because um, I don't know if people know um, what his handwriting is like. You can find examples um, in, in uh, Richard Kelly's book, for example, and, and uh, pro probably online. Um, but he had a beautiful hand, uh, but it was a practiced hand. It's one he worked at <laughs> in his early career and he wanted uh, to perfect a certain kind of signature. I think there are, uh, in his signature, there's an attempt to imitate some of the other signatures of great writers he admired, including Yeats, in fact. And you can see through his uh, Cambridge years in the 30s that he's kind of changing his handwriting very carefully and his spelling too. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he takes on a kind of British spelling, which he holds, you know, right through to the end, the title of this book, of course, we dream of honor with, with a U, you know, which is not the American spelling. Um, so little things like that are so important um, to our sense of him and that kind of intricacy, that kind of detail is also really interesting to see in the archival um, material where, as Calista has just said, you know, sometimes a scrap of paper, three, four, five words can really resonate in terms of um, how we read the the more well-known kind of published work. Um, I can give you plenty of examples of this if, if we have time. Yeah. 
there was a, a, a question, um, somebody who, who was wondering if, if you could expand on how Claudia Rankin's poems may relate to those of John Berryman. You mentioned uh, contemporary poets who are uh, in conversation with Berryman and uh, in particular about race. Yes, I mean, well, just briefly what I would say, and again, I think Callista can develop this if, if, if possible, but in Citizen, um, uh, if you remember, there is a kind of list of works cited, there's a kind of bibliography. And uh, Berryman and Robert Lowell are, are in fact cited in Citizen, they're qu quoted uh, indeed. The line, one of the lines, a uh, very striking and disturbing line in one of the dream songs, which Berryman in turn takes from the German poet Gottfried Benn. Um, we are using our own skins for wallpaper and we still can't win. Uh, Rankine takes that line, uh, which Berryman has taken from Benn and uses it, um, accrediting Berryman in Citizen. And I think she's doing something really interesting there in terms of recognizing uh, the complexity of Berryman's textual gesture, but also suggesting that there are unresolved political and cultural questions to be asked and answered, you know, when a poet does that, right? Especially when a poet like Berryman writes in blackface. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really interesting moment and it is just there um, in the work, and I think you know it. It, it should be uh, it should be examined in more more detail. That, that's just one example I can think of, Peter. I know that Callista has has um, thought a lot about Chihimba Jess's engagements with with uh, Berryman too in um, Olio. I think yeah. Right. Olio might be another good example um, of the number of recent contemporary American poets who are confronting Berryman's use of the blackface dialect. Um, and what Jess does in Olio is take full-length dream songs uh, and rewords them essentially to focus on what Berryman wasn't thinking about there. Um, if you haven't looked at Olio, I would really recommend it. I might just add, Peter, on this question, which is such an important question for Berryman studies, um, and it really hasn't been in, examined in sufficient detail. Um, some of the letters, I think, will really give scholars um, useful material to begin to think about this in new ways, um, and especially an early letter, which he wrote to his parents when he was, I think, 14. And it's a very disturbing letter, and again, I remember during our editorial conversations, Callista and I really, you know, we were really moved and troubled by this letter in which Berryman at boarding school in South Kent, he recalls um, a kind of pageant um, where various, you know, classmates uh, performed in different ways. And in one case, um, um, you know, some of his classmates um, did a kind of performance where, you know, one of them was in blackface um, and one was I think dressed up as a, as a kind of clansman and so it's a you know very disturbing um, um, image um, it, it is I think I think it for me it reveals the kind of deeply uh, kind of racist um, society that that he grew up in and you know we talk today about you know calling out systemic racism in our institutions and in our 
um, you know, in our communities and wherever we encounter it. And one wonders how um, a 14 year old boy in boarding school, you know, in 1928, 1930, might have perceived that. Um, you know, did he, did he consider it as, as something that was wrong? And, and if he did, how would he have said so? Um, so I think there are instances like this throughout the letters that throw new light on Berryman's lifelong uh, thinking about, about the problem of, of, of racism. Um, I, I think actually that in, in the dream songs, I mean, one of the things that you know, it is called the dream songs, but I always think of Joyce's line when I, when I read uh, the dream songs, you know, history is a, a nightmare from, from which I'm trying to awake. And I think in some ways, uh, the dream songs reads as a kind of record of the nightmare of living in this uh, very violent uh, racist society. Yeah. Oh. Thank you too for that, that really very helpful answer. Tom Travisano is here and asked, um, how did you just, this is a, a key question. How did you decide what to leave out? It must've been painful. Melissa just told me what was going out and that was it. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to lighten it a little and I'll, I'll be totally honest here. Um, I was of the view, I guess, two years ago, we, we had about 400,000 words of transcribed material, um, but we had signed a contract for a book of no more than 250,000. And I, I tried to convince Calissa that we should go back and say, what about doing two volumes or maybe just kind of getting a little bit more space but she can tell you then about the difficult process of deciding what should go and how we finally uh, and happily, um, I, you know, made that compromise. So it was pulling teeth. Um, Philip, can you hear me? My internet connection is a little iffy. We can hear you. I think what we did to start just to sort of go into the cutting process gently was to start a new doc file called deleted stuff. And every time we concluded, all right, well, this letter overlaps quite a bit with these other four letters to um, fellowship applications. Let's, let's cut it, we'll put it over here. We haven't, it hasn't vanished. We've got it if we want it back. And I think that helped um, in cutting what I think ended up being something like 150,000 words, but yeah. it, uh, it was difficult because a lot of the letters that ended up going, um, there are trevise around the edges. And I think at some point we implicitly decided not to go back and look at that deleted stuff file to remind ourselves of all the things we might be leaving out. Yeah. But, but trying to cover as much ground as possible and include as many topically interesting letters as possible um, was how we began. Yeah, one, one you, I mean, Tom will, will know all about this. I mean, his work um, with uh, Saskia Hamilton on the Lowell Bishop letters is, you know, it's so, so important. I might just say, Peter, that, you know, over the last few years, I mean, it's been a great kind of time for um, uh, the publication of letters in kind of middle generation poetry scholarship and, um, we've had uh, Tom Travisano and Saskia Hamilton's um, um, letters, and then Saskia's more recent books. 
of the you know the dolphin the dolphin letters in particular um and so i think calista and i both hope that the, this volume of berryman's letters will fill another gap in that kind of story about middle generation poetry but i have to be honest to go back to the question um i have barely looked at that file that calista has mentioned of the stuff that we took out um kind of heartbreak it was heartbreaking to do it <laughs> but but we did and i think the book is stronger for that actually as a selection yeah well, maybe that means that the the scholarly pursuit of Berryman never ends. That there's there it's there's there's something promising, and it even this this wonderfully comprehensive and beautiful book uh, being having a little bit of incompletion. Yeah, um, Peter, if I might just say, you, you know, and again, this kind of feels like a like I'm just you know plugging the book, but it is a beautiful book, and plug away. Take a moment to look at the cover image from the artist uh, Jaya Michelli, um, and I don't know what our participants and the audience members think, but uh, my other half suggested that that it reminded her of Matisse's The Snail, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it again speaks to that kind of visual interest in, in the book. And there are a couple of interesting references to Matisse, too, in the book. Um, but Berryman himself once said, and of course, he was a, a scholar, you know, uh, a book on Stephen Crane, uh, several important essays on Shakespeare and essays on many other writers. But in his Crane study, at one point, He's, you know, trying to locate what he calls the primal scene in Crane's work, you know, and really as a, as a scholar, he's trying to work this out. And at the end, he kind of throws his hands in the air and says, well, who knows how many deep sources, uh, or who knows how many sources a deep work has, <laughs> you know, and I think um, any work of art, work of poetry worth reading will, will lead to that question. And you know, there comes a point when you just pass it on to the next reader or the next generation of readers. And I feel that um, that's certainly the case with Berryman. It's an endlessly rewarding body of work with so much more um, scholarship to, to be done, I think. Well, that reminds me, is this, since we're, we're wrapping up, reaching the point where we have to wrap up, that, that we should thank HUP, Harvard University Press, for doing such a beautiful job. And I also want to thank all of our panelists and who, who did such a marvelous and generous uh, service today of, of uh, bringing this, this book into the public conversation. And um, we'd also in particular like to thank the Berryman family, Paul, Sarah, and Kate, uh, Thank you very much for your, your graciousness. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. And Martha also. You're Martha. Yeah. And Martha, of course. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Well, and I just like to say thank you to all of you. This is this has been a fabulous program. And thank you for sharing the just the rich exploration of John Berryman's life and letters with us. Um, my special thanks to you, Peter and Philip, Callista, Cecily, yeah. and all of you, Patricia, um, Henri, 
Richard, for all of you who have had, Eve, thank you, um, for all of you who've been involved with this event. And thank you so much to the audience who, um, who joined us today. We had over 160 people at one point. So um, reached a very large audience and I think uh, it was a terrific program. I know I enjoyed it. And I just hope you all will enjoy, uh, will join us on March 18th for a presentation on mapping prejudice, a reckoning with structural racism in the Twin Cities.